Welcome to a new episode of our MBSE podcast. This time we are looking again at Sysmal v2. In the last episode, we looked at the migration from Sysmal v1 to Sysmal v2. After five years of work, it is coming to an end and is getting more and more interesting to look at the new language. This time we have one of the masterminds of Sysmal v2 as a guest, Ed Seidowitz. Ed leads the SST team working on Sysmal v2 alongside uh, Sandy Friedenthal. And yeah, it's best to let Ed introduce himself. So hi, Ed, welcome to our podcast and thanks for taking the time. Hi, Tim. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I, some of you out there might know who I am, which is probably why you're listening to the podcast other than these are just great system engineers to listen to. I've been involved with UML for a long time. My current position is I'm CTO of Model Driven Solutions, um, but I've been working in UML standardization for 20 years or more, and uh, particularly uh, over the last several years working in uh, executable UML standards. Right now, I am co-lead of the SysML v2 submission team with uh, Sandy Friedenthal, and that's why I'm here today, and I'm looking forward to talking about what we're doing to get SysML v2 done. Great. Yeah. So thanks, Ed, for joining us also from my side. And uh, yeah, you already or Tim already mentioned it. Uh, SysML v2 is on its final last stretch to completion. Uh, but there's still something on the roadmap. So can you tell us a little bit about the roadmap until sure. the release? For those of you who might not be aware, I'm assuming most of the audience probably is, that SysML v2 is standardized through the OMG, the Object Management Group. And we are now in a submission process. The OMG put out uh, RFPs both for SysML v2, the language, and for an API for accessing SysML v2 repositories. We are coming to the conclusion. Um, our official submission date is in November. So that is a month before the OMG meeting in December. So we are now getting from where we are to November. Uh, we have most of the language in place and uh, we are working on finalizing our specifications, uh, documents and other artifacts that need to be produced in order to submit to OMG. Uh, there will be, uh, there's no OMG meeting coming up this month. They're held quarterly and there's another one in September. Um, we are going to be putting in place our final planning for the third quarter of this year uh, at the OMG meeting coming up in June. Our goal is to get all our artifacts, all our specifications done by the September meeting because this is such a big submission um, and there's so much that we're going to need to review. Our goal is actually to be substantially done by September and actually present at the OMG meeting in September uh, so people can actually start the process of review early, even though our official submission won't be until November. Once we get that, we have from September to November isn't a whole lot of time, but we'll be able to make some final adjustments. Um, we're really focused on getting that final submission in, in November. Then the OMG adoption process starts in November, in December, um, and you go through adoption and finalization. Uh, the beta specification should be out by the beginning of the next year, uh, and it'll be at least a year or so of finalization, and then get the finalized 1.0 spec out. Uh, probably uh, sometime in early to mid 2024. Mm -hmm. So, um, you have already mentioned that the SST team uh, develops the SysML. So, actually, many people think the OMG develops the SysML, but they are only responsible for it. Um, but how does it work? So, is there a company behind the team and uh, or who are the people in the team and who pays them? Or can you shed some light on that? I, um, yeah, we have a huge pot of money and everybody's getting rich yes. off this. No, actually, <laughs> um, the way it works, OMG is an industry consortium. 
Um, it actually has a very small staff and really its goal is to coordinate the work of its members to work together to produce uh, industry standard specifications. Uh, and the way it works in the process is that groups at OMG, really the members come to OMG um, and produce requests for proposals for new technology specifications. Those go out and then they are responded to by the membership, by the OMG membership. Uh, and that process of actually figuring out how to respond to the RFP is actually outside of the OMG organization itself. That's up to the members to decide what they want to provide as a response, as a proposal responding to these RFPs. Once you have the proposal, and there's a couple stages, there's an initial proposal, and now with System LV2, we're getting the revised and final proposal in. Once that happens, then it goes into the uh, approval and adoption process. But how you organize to put together the proposal, that's really entirely up to the submission team. Uh, when OMG started way back in the early 90s, I guess it was, I think it was, um, the idea was that probably individual companies or a couple organizations would get together and put proposals in. Uh, and, and that's kind of how it happened Like with, with the original UML1 proposal. Uh, there were groupings around Rational and IBM and a few others that put in several proposals. Uh, as time went on and as the proposals became more ambitious and, and some of the what's being requested from OMG has become more ambitious, especially from UML2 on, uh, there's a lot more effort needed to go into producing these proposals. Uh, and with SysML v2, well, that, we, as, as we'll discuss some, uh, we had to go back and um, really start from the ground up building what we wanted in the language for various reasons. So it was a large effort. We made a commitment to do that by engaging a lot of the community. Uh, so we really have a much larger submission team than you typically or I think have ever seen before. And we've intentionally tried to engage. There was a time when System LV2 came out and there was two groups. Um, they merged fairly early on into uh, the SST. Um, there is no formal SST legal entity. So it is really a collaboration between 70 some different organizations now who are collaborating on this. Um, and we were just looking at our list, we've had over 200 people involved. Now, they're not all 200 people involved. It is not like a huge effort where you have 200 people engaged all the time. But over the last five years, we have coming in and out, we've had 200 people, most of who at some point in time have actually had some engagement and contributed. Um, but you know it, what happens is rarely do we have people assigned full-time to this. Companies will assign time to contribute in various areas that are of uh, importance to them. Uh, and a subset of the companies are, some companies are really just involved to review what's going on. Uh, a little bit more than half of the companies actually have signed a legal agreement between the groups, between each other, uh, to actually contribute their IP uh, to the actual specification. So we have a really large segment across the, a really large cut across the industry from, you know, Airbus and Boeing and IBM um, and, you know, all these big companies all the way down, uh, you know, to not small companies, good-sized companies like OOSE um, and uh, that, that are involved in this, all the way down to individual consulting companies. You know, Sandy and I are now just in small companies. Um, mm -hmm. And we have real range from the community that's contributed. Uh, and, you know, then we organized the effort, not surprisingly, a lot like a system engineering, a system engineer would organize the effort. <laughs> we have a requirements VNV team. Uh, we have a, a team that is working on putting the meta model together. Uh, we have a team, which Tim is one of the leaders of, uh, working on the transition from V1 to V2. Um, we have a a team that is working on the API and a team that's working on the pilot specification. 
Um, that's all coordinated by our overall leadership team, which is really our system engineering team um, that's coordinating the effort. So we, we have done that and we still managed to run a fairly agile process. Um, now we don't do it, it's not a weekly cycle, it's more like a monthly cycle, but as a lot of people know, for the last few years, we've been putting out monthly open source releases, which is also different than mm-hmm. really has been done mm-hmm. in any effort of this size, um, where we've actually been prototyping and doing our pilot implementation and putting that out for even wider review beyond the SST. Uh, so that's how it's been organized. And um, we're still, we're talking about what's going to carry on afterwards once uh, we actually. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people on this topic, uh, but also a lot of output if you're looking in the pilot implementation and let's go a little bit deeper in, in the meta model and to the language. So, Uh, as many people know, uh, SysML v2 is not based on UML2 anymore. So maybe you can give us some insights why there was this decision to sure. yeah, create this new meta-meta model. Yeah, and was- uh, will it be uh, will it have an impact to practitioners and to tools? Yes and yes. <laughs> I can't answer and it will have an impact. Uh, There was a lot of discussion on this before the system LV2 RFPs went out. One of the things that was done before the RFPs were produced was really a uh, discussion in the community of what had and hadn't worked in system LV1. Now, one of the reasons system LV1 was able to be successful was it came out quite soon after UML2, and it was probably the first major profile, sort of profile as a domain-specific language built on top of UML2. And a lot of effort went into that and it let it leverage the work that was going on in the transition to UML2 modeling tools. And uh, I think that was a real success. However, 10 years after that happened, um, and once SysML became really the the major language for model-based systems engineering and the systems engineering community, there were certain issues that not surprisingly came to light. UML2 was, even UML2, UML certainly, but even UML2 was really mostly designed by software people. Now, there were business process and other sort of modeling capabilities that went into UML2, but really the legacy from UML1 was for modeling for software and software-intensive systems. And then especially with its uh, object-oriented design background, flavored the way the language was put together. And it was not always the way that systems engineers wanted to think about modeling their system. Uh, and, and one of the uh, major things, what we call usage-focused modeling, that's very common in systems engineering, it's not starting with classes and types as is common in software, um, but starting with concrete examples. I want a car and I want it to be like this or like that. And starting from sort of the specific and then generalizing from there. Another example is it's very common to uh, separate the specification of the behavior from the structure. You know, you have a behavioral specification, maybe alternative structural breakdowns and allocate the behavior to the structure. This is sort of exactly against the object-oriented approach that is built into UML uh, in more fundamental ways than I think even the designers realized. So it became harder and harder to get around that. And if you see the point releases of SysML from 1.0 through what's being worked on now is 1.7 will probably be the last one, 1.6 is the current version, you can see an increasing number of attempts to work around the issues with UML um, becoming less and less just a variant of UML and more and more a separate language that had to figure out how to build itself on top of UML. And at some point that just became too hard to do. The whole concept of allocation became hard to formalize. Um, doing usage-focused modeling was really hard. You had other efforts. You had other modeling languages that did that kind of thing better. Uh, one of the reasons uh, Capella and Arcadia another modeling language um, evolved was because they sort of broke away from this object-oriented viewpoint. Uh, 
Uh, everybody would like to have built, the vendors saw a big benefit in building off UML2, but it, it really was not possible to satisfy the user requirements anymore. And the question was just how much would we deviate? Uh, and then there was the response was, well, maybe we should fix UML. And yes, that would have been a good thing to do. We knew that five years ago um, or longer, and uh, there just is not right now the enthusiasm really in that in the UML community to make major changes like there is in the SysML community. So after actually figuring out what the community wanted to do, put out the RFPs and said, look, if you can build this on UML2, build it on UML2. If not, you don't have to. Uh, and it was pretty mm -hmm. clear um, from when we formed the SST that we were not going to be able to build this on UML2 and, and meet all the requirements. Uh, there was a separate effort that was already going on to look at a kernel modeling language. Um, Conrad Bach, Chaz Gailey, and uh, Bjorn um, Cole had been, had been looking at that for a mm -hmm. while to try to simplify UML. Uh, and we, we said, look, we take that as a basis and we build on that what we really want for the systems engineering community. We can not only get a language that fits systems engineers, but now maybe we've gotten a basis that we can build other languages that don't have as much of the bias in it. We can focus maybe a new software architecture language that works with the agile community rather than looking back 30 years ago to the OO community. Um, and we can uh, have more consistency between what we want in system engineering, software architecture engineering, and other kinds of of engineering efforts. So that's where mm -hmm. we're, we're hoping that, that we're gonna go. But right now, our first focus is making sure we meet the needs of the system engineering modeling community because there's so much enthusiasm uh, out there right now for, um, for doing model-based systems engineering. Uh, and yes, this is gonna have an impact on the vendors and the vendors, it's mm -hmm. amazing. We're sort of holding back and hoping that somehow uh, they would just have a way to build this just on top, of, I think, of their existing system LV1 tools. Um, but once they finally saw uh, what was coming out and they saw the enthusiasm from the community uh, mm -hmm. about actually having their needs fulfilled, um, we've really seen over the last year a lot of major vendors stepping up, um, making public commitments and putting effort behind even now, even though we have not gotten done on, on uh, starting their commercial, their work towards commercial implementations. Um, and I think that's very positive. Mm -hmm. So but the, the first thing most people see is, is the textual syntax not of system LV2. And many people think, well, now system LV2 is becoming a programming language, yeah. uh, which was very surprising for them because uh, they know that system L is, is it's a graphical language. So um, can you clarify that a bit? Why, why is there a textual syntax? And is there also a graphical syntax? Yes, there is a graphical syntax. <laughs> I, I won't even joke about that. So I don't <laughs> want people to be afraid um, that there is no graphical syntax. Uh, so the reason the textual syntax is so prominent is both for real reasons and for happenstance reasons. Um, I did a lot of work on the executable UML and we built the alpha language on top of the foundational UML specification for executable UML. And since then there've been uh, specifications for precise matches of composite structure and state machine. We've learned a lot from that. Um, one of the things we learned from doing an action language was that even in the context of a graphical language, there are things that can be done better textually um, for most people at least, then can be done graphically. And when you get down to activity diagrams um, for detailed specification of behavior that you need to do actual simulation models, that gets really hard to do. And it's mm -hmm. really hard to do them well and in an interoperable standards compliant way. Uh, so you end up using tools that give you outs and workarounds or throwing in JavaScript and which is non-standard <laughs> for modeling it's, it, well, it, but it's JavaScript for God's sake. Um, 
so we definitely wanted a textual component to the modeling language. That was part of the design from the beginning. But we also wanted to build off the experience with what we had done with uh, the executable modeling languages where we built those specifications. We also built implementations of them while we were writing the specifications. And uh, mm -hmm. that gave us a lot of important feedback. And I think make the specifications a lot better going in. One of the issues that happened with UML2 was it was a major update to UML, but nobody implemented it. Nobody even tried until after it got submitted. And then major work had to be done to redo the standard because there were all these implementation issues. So right from the beginning, we went and said, look, we're going to make a major change. It's going to be like UML2 or bigger uh, in terms of the, the work that needs to be done. We want to have the experience of actually piloting this and prototyping this as we go. Well, mm -hmm. then you've got the issue of, well, heck, we can't build this just on UML2 and tools because one of the things we want to address, you know, as it came for risk mitigation, you want to address, you want to do some of the things that are easy, but you also want to start working out the hard issues because you don't know how long those are going to take. And we didn't have tools that supported that. So we looked at the programming language uh, engineering environments that were out there to help give us a leg up mm -hmm. to build these languages. Um, and they are mostly textually based. There are some tools out there to let you do graphical languages, but it's really hard to prototype um, real graphical languages. Yeah, it's easy to do Visio or, you know, just draw pictures, but to actually make it uh, a, a graphical language uh, and prototype that is just hard. Whereas there's a lot of tooling out there to do it textually. So on the one hand, we did want to have a textual component. On the other hand, we also wanted to quickly be able to prototype this. And it was easier to do the entire language textually to start with. Um, the goal was always to move towards uh, a graphical capability also. And actually fairly early on, we started prototyping at least graphical visualization. Um, but yeah. once we started getting in the cycle of trying to, as we built the language, and that really started, we had a uh, user review in August of, I think it was 2018 um, was the first one. And we were fairly early on, 2018, 2019. Um, and once we started putting it in the hands of our user community um, and integrated it with Jupyter Notebook, uh, which some people may be familiar with as a very popular open source engineering tool, but it's textually based. Well, I was amazed how people picked up the textual notation and started mm -hmm. just using it. And, and then it just became like, all right, if people are going to actually use this and give us feedback, we want to make sure that every new capability got in the textual notation. Um, and it, we, we started piloting the, the graphical visualization, even though you couldn't do graphical editing, so at least you could look at it. Um, but one of the things we found was that once you started about the textual notation, because people were more used to it, there was a lot more discussion of what the textual notation should look like, because it's like, oh, let's make it look like System LV1, except, wait a minute, we've got these new things in there that aren't in System LV1. And by the way, we didn't like that System LV1 notation that was based on UML, so there's been a lot of discussion now about the graphical notation. That's come a little bit later, to be honest, than we expected, uh, or than we had hoped. Um, but there has been over the last year, year and a half, a lot of discussion, a good discussion about the graphical notation, making it consistent so you can go easily back and forth from the graphical to textual notation. So textual annotations on the graphical notation have the same syntax mm -hmm. as the base of the graphical notation. There'll be a lot of neat integration. Um, and I think that's going to be really powerful going forward tools where people who like the textual notation, which isn't everybody, but especially people no. who are more and more that have a programming background, do like entering it. Um, but at some point, you, the, part of the power of having a modeling language is you can now have a graphical view. When you're presenting that or analyzing, it's much easier to do on the graphical view. You might be able to put it in more quickly with the textual edit it graphically, mm -hmm. present it graphically, then get down and say, I want to make this executable and I want to simulate it. And by the way, I'm going to put this behavior in here. Oh, I'm just going to type in my equations mm -hmm. using our expression notation. Um, and mm -hmm. that's much faster than trying to do an activity diagram mm -hmm. for it. 
Um, so I think that's the future that we're getting to, where we'll have tools that will meld the graphical and textual, and to be honest, will go to even better visualizations, connect in with mm-hmm. three-dimensional um, for views. Uh, and we're already talking about, you know, how we interface with CAD systems and um, other things. So there'll be the capability for having, I think, not going back to just text, but much more powerful visualizations going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll be looking for the big tool vendors who have connections now uh, into all this other tooling to, to bring to bear their experience on that. So the thing I like on the text notation is that it is really like a programming language. It's, it's, it is unambiguously what, what is meant. And uh, my hope is that you can also use the textual notation as one fail-based way to transfer models between yes. SysML models. Um, we talked early on about having the textual notation as being the notation for model interchange. So that even if you put it in graphically, um, you should be able to write it out in the textual notation and use that because heck, that's what programming languages have done for years. And that's mm. the other thing is if we can ride on top of a lot of the programming language infrastructure that's built up, um, we get a lot of benefit from that in mm. terms of repositories and GitHub and whatnot. However, what we found was we have a richer language than your typical programming language. Uh, and trying to represent everything in a textual notation, you get to an issue where at some point you may do stuff that makes sense in a graphical view. It just doesn't look very good. You know, it's just hard to put in a textual notation that is intended to be usable by humans. Um, and where our textual notation is not necessarily our only way of representing and visualizing this and where it's all based on our abstract syntax, we decided that that is not necessarily the best way to do our primary model interchange, but it always will be a way. Um, and I see there will be a, I, in my belief, will be part of the ecosystem will be tools that uh, are similar to programming language, interactive development environments, uh, where you're operating primarily on text for those that are comfortable with that and visualizing graphically. So I see a lot of, use cases where people will be exchanging the textual notation. Um, But what we're working on now is actually also providing, and we will have an XMI-based interchange because we just get that. We're still building on the MOF technology, but everybody has decided that we need to move beyond the current XMI. Um, JSON, of course, is popular now, so we will have a JSON-based interface. Um, And one of the interesting things is we are basing that on the same JSON representation that we are using for the uh, JSON technology binding for our API for the REST uh, HTTP binding, Um, which means that in a sense, when you exchange these JSON files, what they will be is just document-based encapsulations of what's Mm -hmm. really just a repository. And you'll be able to access it using the same API uh, really, as you can to access a repository. So it's kind of neat. So our model change, if, if for security reasons, for instance, you can't, uh, I'm not allowed to for my environment to go access Tim's repository with the API, but I want stuff from Tim. Well, Tim mm-hmm. can just take that package a project up in this model interchange form just by reading the JSON from his repository, packaging it up, send it to me so I can do all my virus scans on it. Then I can just take it um, and either put it in my repository or just read it into my tool using the same API as if it was in the remote repository. So that is our sort of base approach to model change that we're, that we're working on now. But that doesn't keep a tool from also writing out text files. If you have two tools that use the textual notation, no reason. And that's just another representation. And in fact, we're also looking at this idea where if you have a project that's in multiple text files, um, one of not the only, and this may not be normative, but a the representation we're moving to for instance, the pilot implementation is you may have a directory structure that represents your project with a bunch of textual files in it. And if you want to interchange that using the JSON, well, you just write out each one of those .sysml files as a .json file with the same package structure and then zip it up with some uh, metadata 
to, to describe it. And that's basically uh, your project structure for interchange. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that there, there is, we're trying to not have these all be completely separate. They're all different views on that same basic abstract syntax structure. And we're trying to make all the ways you deal with this, whether it's repository, textual files, or um, you know, JSON-based interface, interchange. In the end, mm-hmm. those are just different on the wire or in the database representations of this abstract syntax that, that you want to display in various forms. Mm-hmm. So um, coming back uh, to the textual notation, uh, in, in System LV1, if people create diagrams or another, then they say, well, let's create a diagram or let's create a model or let's model something. Now, if I use a textual notation, uh, can it then be called, let's program system L? Is, is, is that correct? Or how would you name it? It can be called that. Of course, it all depends on what you mean by programming. Mm-hmm. Um, and it all depends depends um, on whether you consider programming in system L to be a, a good thing or a pejorative thing. Um, some people say, oh, it's as I think Christian sort of said, oh, this is cool. I can program in system L. And some people are mm-hmm. like, I don't want to use textual notation. That's programming system L, right? <laughs> um, and it really depends on your viewpoint and how you're using it. From the mm-hmm. point of view of using certain kinds of tooling, like using Jupyter, yes, the interaction is intentionally supposed to be a lot like programming for modeling. And that is because it lets us leverage uh, existing tooling. And since UML started, and one of the issues that has happened in the software community is that the interactive development environment for textual programming languages have developed so much and the tooling around doing agile processes has developed so much that a lot of the traditional way we presented the benefits of modeling don't seem like as much benefits to software people anymore. And the tooling seems old hat. Mm-hmm. And you know, it also got into the, the associated with waterfall processes, which wasn't necessarily correct, but that's another matter. But rather than us trying to say, oh, our modeling tools are inherently better and have to be different. It's like, well, let's look at what all these software people are using and why that has turned out to be good. And is that applicable? Well, for a certain community it is. And there are a lot of engineers out there now who are very who are programmers too because yeah. they've grown up with a generation that is very comfortable with personal computers and scripting and whatnot. So you've got all these environments. You've got MATLAB. You've got um, uh, Jupiter that are basically programming environments with additional analytical tools on them for engineering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that kind of environment, having a textual approach and be able to have an interaction that is like programming and yet have a very rich modeling language. Um, that is, I think, going to be very powerful and it's going to help create a synergy between the sort of programming viewpoint and then the model real benefits of modeling where you're looking beyond just executability, even beyond just simulation and having analyzability and interaction going forward and interfacing with you know, other tooling like PLM and CAD tooling. On the other hand, we are developing a modeling language, not a programming language. Uh, and a lot of the underlying semantics um, are going to be more familiar to modelers than they are to some of the traditional programmers. Not only that, we're building a modeling language where you're thinking about modeling physical things, not just software. So you take to account things that are sort of, this is another area where system LV1 had to work around UML, things like continuous flows and uh, dealing with extent mm-hmm. over space and time and you know, dealing with the fact that these, these are uh, physical systems that are modeled in mathematics like differential equations and um, things that Yes, you implement it in software and there's a whole community of numerical methods to implement these things in software. But when you model them, you want to think about not the implementation in software. You want to think about what is my model? How is this going to flow? What is the fluid dynamics? What is the electrical um, equations that go on? Mm -hmm. What is the aerodynamics, Mm -hmm. the thermodynamics? 
right? And that that leads us to a very powerful language uh, that mm -hmm. hopefully will make a lot of sense to systems engineers <clears throat> um, and still be usable in these programming mm -hmm. kind of environments. Mm -hmm. Yeah, maybe we should come to the language itself. So by the way, at on my side, your camera froze. Maybe you can- I know, my, I was gonna camera. ask you about that. Okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, ah, now you're again live here. I was like, yeah, I was, I was um, gonna ask you about that, but I was busy talking. I didn't know if it was my side. <laughs> so we've just spent the last, you know, 15 minutes with me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it wasn't that bad. Um, <laughs> Yeah, but yeah, coming to the language. So we already heard it was a big effort uh, to to create all the kernel stuff, all the meta model stuff, and yeah, we prepared four questions, uh, and maybe um, we can go shortly go through these four examples, which are four of I don't know two hundred examples or two hundred <laughs> concepts, um, just to give our listeners. Yeah, an impression what what changed, what is different to SysMLv1. And um, as the first example, we talked with you about the membership relationship, which was not existing in SysMLv1. So what's about what's behind this concept? Everybody wants to be a member, right? It's exclusive. <laughs> now, uh, so one of the things that developed is this wasn't going in, but it developed along the way was to come up with a very consistent structure for representing models in a way that can be very regularly navigated. And the API and our development of the API actually had a lot of influence over this. You mentioned the membership relationship and that's kind of where it started because one of the things that we did think about going in was the whole concept of naming things and identifying things. Uh, and that, turns out to be of particular importance for the modeling language, especially with systems engineering, where you are coordinating uh, across different disciplines, potentially across different languages, human languages internationally. Um, you need to think about the names of things. In a programming language, you name it and refer to everything by name. So if you're looking at the textual notation, you still get the idea that you have to name everything. Um, and you sort of, from a programming point of view, forget that a name is always relative because in a programming language, once you name a variable, that's how it's referred to. On the modeling language, we went in saying, oh, we already have requirements. We need to be able to name something. You need to be able to give it multiple aliases and different contexts. It's gonna have a, a unique identifier, but may have different identifiers relative to a requirement system, relative to other systems you interact with. So the whole idea of having a rich structure for naming things was very important. And we looked at UML, well in UML, it's not very consistent. So you've got a namespace in UML that can have owned members and they're directly related to the namespace. You can have imported members and imported members are related by a reified and explicit import relationship. You can have inherited members. Well, inherited members come in with types in a totally different way based on uh, specialization. Um, and it, it means that if you wanna just get all the members, well, that's a derived relationship to do that. But if you wanna to get to them by navigating the model, it's all different ways to navigate the relationships to get to the other ends. So we decided to say, oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had this basic idea of membership and actually introduce that as an actual relationship? And then you have memberships that represent owned members. That's a relationship to a namespace, to the actual members that are contained in that namespace. Then another namespace can have an import, but what it does is import those memberships. So those are memberships for members that are owned in other namespaces, but there's still membership relationships with the importing namespace. And inherited memberships, well, those are just more members. So the idea was to have a consistent structure. And once we started doing that, we said, you know, there are other things in UML where this isn't consistent, where sometimes you've got direct relationships and sometimes you've got reified relationships. Um, and some of that was there because of sort of um, anticipated performance issues. Some of it was just there because of the language developed 
what we said was suppose we just reify all our relationships, that any two non-relationship elements are related by an actual reified relationship. And what you get is very close. It's a little bit more general than most tools handle out of the box, but our idea developed to get to very much to a graph structure. And there's a lot of work on graph databases and traversing graph structures and graph query languages. But basically we have elements that are nodes and elements that are edges between those nodes, which are relationships. And where we go beyond some of it is that because now these are reified in MOF, we can actually specialize our relationships. And we have found that that has a lot of power because now you can have the same kind of things at either end of the relationship, but specialize the relationship and put in more constraints. So we can have membership and then a special kind of membership for membership that represents features that are properties of the thing that's the namespace. And then, oh, some of those are parameters. We get parameter membership and some of them represent stakeholders. But what it means is we came to, for instance, for stakeholders that you don't have to have a specific kind of model element for a stakeholder. You just model a stakeholder as a person, as a, as, as you know, you, however you want to model the person as a part or as an item, as a class, uh, or um, and and then just have a relationship that the role is that that person is a stakeholder. Um, and it provided this very powerful idea where the relationships represent roles, the things that one in play relative to the other that you can specialize while keeping what can play those roles very general and only put it in the constraints that really make sense. Um, and this avoids a lot of cases where you have in UML things like, oh, I've got a classifier, I have classes, but then I have actors are special kinds of things. And uh, requirements have to come in as a special kind of stereo, a special kind of thing with system LV1. And did, some of the times it makes sense, sometimes it, it doesn't. Um, but, you know, why is an actor different than a class representing a person? Well, some of it is just because the structure is there in, in UML. You needed to have something different at the end because it had a different meta association. Um, so that, that, that has its pluses and minuses. And from the point of view of the people working on the API and people coming from the point of view of doing you know, graph structures in, in the persistence, this has been very positive. And it, it has allowed our API to have a very straightforward navigation structure. Um, from the implementation point of view, uh, it wasn't a problem in the pilot implementation because, but uh, once you start saying, oh, we wanna now represent models, which do exist that are millions or tens of millions of elements. If you have an implementation that naively just has a Java object or something for every element, including all the relationships now, well, depending on how you look at it, you could potentially have 50% or even double the number of elements and that could be a performance issue. It just means that, yeah, maybe the old ways of implementing this aren't the right way to implement it. There's a lot of other technologies to deal with this um, in a, a way that gives you the benefits of the graph structure with a performance implementation. And sure enough, we hear less complaints about that now that the vendors are actually looking at it and saying, yeah, we'll figure out how to implement this. Um, you know, it just isn't going to be implemented the same way that our old UML tools were implemented. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think we're going to end up with things that are not only more performant for large models, but uh, again, build a lot of the work that's been done out there with you know, huge CAD models and uh, mm -hmm. huge PLM models that have had to deal with this already for years, dealing with millions of elements and, and all sorts of relationships. Yeah. Okay, so, well- That was one, one question, right? This was one question, yeah. And another one is um, um, definition and usage is a new concept of the language. Well, actually it's uh, already in, in system that we want like block and property, but what's new is that it's available all across the language. Most model elements are available as a usage and a definition element. So what was the driving requirement behind that? Yeah, actually this goes back to a lot of work that was done actually even before the RFP came out. The system LRFP had in it already a conceptual model. Um, it, it, was, it was sort of additional information on that, that captured a lot of the work that had been done to think about what the community wanted conceptually in terms of a modeling language. What are the concepts behind the modeling language for systems engineering? Um, and you already saw this idea of definition and usage in there. Uh, 
And you're right, Tim, it's not a new concept mm -hmm. uh, in terms of UML and in terms of programming, it's in there, it's, it's type and instance. However, type and instance are very programming language theory kind of approach. I mean, they come out of a lot of work that's done also mathematically, but it didn't seem real intuitive or natural for engineers. On the other hand, having a definition and a usage of that definition was very natural. And what's also natural is to say, I don't have to always start with a definition and then have usages of that definition. I can start with the usages and that's the usage focused approach. And um, instance always makes it seems like it's instance of something. Mm -hmm. uh, so it seems like you have a type and instances of the type. Usage makes it seem like I, I have a usage of something, but that can be very specific. I can start out saying, oh, here's how I'm gonna use my car or my airplane or um, whatever else I'm designing. I'm gonna start with some specifics because often we have some very specific requirements. And then I'm going to generalize up from that. And if, if necessary, say, oh yeah, now I'm gonna define in general what I mean. I want an engine because I have these three kinds of engines and they're all, here's the general definition of an engine and here's three kinds of engines and then here's the usages of those kinds of engines. Mm -hmm. We wanted to capture that, that in a very consistent way. And we started out, so very early on, um, you could see in when we first presented, for instance, our technical language to the users, we wanted to have a bridge to system LV1. And we still, we already we talked about blocks and we had um, blocks as the definition and we had value properties and reference properties. Um, but then when we got to activities, it was like, well, in system LV1, activities are actual kinds of classes, but actions aren't. So the activity action relationship is not a composite structure relationship, which led to problems because you couldn't do normal connectors and system LV1, these adjunct properties, ways to work around that, and we didn't want to do that. So we had a typical decomposition now where an action could be decomposed into other actions in system LV2, and, and that's just a composite structure. It's just a usage decomposition, just like parts being decomposed into part properties. So instead of activity, we talked about, we called it an action definition. And, and we talked, started talking about action definitions and action usages. Um, but we had, and as we introduced new stuff, like we didn't want to use the term interface in a programming way um, because systems, this is another interesting thing. Systems engineers think of interfaces, right? As a thing in the middle. You have an interface control document that talks about both ends while software people think about it as the ends and the connectors in the middle, whereas engineers, the interfaces in the middle of the connectors on the ends. Um, but in system LV1, you saw this idea of an interface and an interface block, but we didn't want to use interface in that way. So interface blocks are used to type ports. So we said, oh, we'll call that a block definition. So it's like, all right, now we have got action definitions and action usages, part, uh, uh, port definitions and port usages. Well, isn't a block really just a part definition? Um, and uh, can't you really have composite and non-composite reference for all these things? And aren't they really all values? So what is really a value? So we, we, we made this sort of terminological change that it was already in our underlying abstract syntax, but by making it visible, suddenly it became very regular. We had part definitions, part usages, attribute definitions, attribute usages to what were value types Right. You had value types and value properties. You had blocks and part properties, not very consistent, activities and actions. These are all similar concepts, but they all use different terminology in UML. So we said, let's just make that consistent because underneath now it is is consistent concept underneath. So we made it part definition, part usage, attribute definition, attribute usage, action. And as we went further and started building up the language, well, requirements definition, requirements usage, mm -hmm. state definition, state usage. So it became very consistent. And one of the things is because all the structuring is built up using composite structure, state usages are built up as usages within other states, actions or usages within other actions. And it's the same structure as part usages within other parts. 
Mm. Um, it all worked very consistently. So it really means not introducing a totally new concept, but taking advantage of the concepts that were already there in a way that wasn't taken advantage of in UML and System LV1. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking of actions and behavior in general, um, so there were, oh, I remember very interesting presentations by Conrad Bock about the onto behavior and all the occurrences in time. And, and yep. can you tell us a little bit about that uh, shortly? <laughs> if we have, yeah, how much time do we have for this? Um, minus uh, five minutes. <laughs> oh yes, there, there, there's, there's a long discussion, not just in Carmel and SysML, but in general in ontological communities uh, and in philosophy and in physics of whether you think of space and time as things in space evolving in time, or you take in a four-dimensional space-time viewpoint. Uh, and it turns out there's a lot of advantages to looking at it from a space-time viewpoint for philosophical and physical reasons, you know, in relativity, it really is space-time. But from a modeling viewpoint, the advantage that it gives you is you can actually now model these structurally. So once you now think of space-time as a four-dimensional structure, you can come up with models of that four-dimensional structure and actually model things like ordering in time, causality, and then build on that, um, not just in time, but also structures in space, space and time slices, and build on top of that clocks. It allows you to provide this all, be able to all be done within the modeling formalism. So the way we build it up is that the basic ontological modeling is actually very small uh, in, in the core of Carmel. Uh, and the idea of space and time are actually represented as concepts in our ontology, in the library built using these basic concepts. And then the things that systems engineers used are built on top of that. So they can still think of clocks and time flowing forward and whatnot, but underneath, because we have this four-dimensional formalism, it can be represented using models actually in kernel without having to introduce, well, what is process and flow of time as some separate kind of formalism. So that's the short answer. The long answer gets into all sorts of discussion about how you uh, deal with, uh, once you have that portions and sub portions and mm -hmm. space and time. Yeah, and yeah. It's interesting, the time we had for a long time, because time is one dimensional. And once you have the basic idea of things uh, ordered in time, you also have to deal with the fact that we're, we're dealing with continuous, not just discrete time. So things can be arbitrarily close together. It's basically just, you know, dealing with continuity and mathematics and, and, and mapping it to the real number line for a clock. Space is much more complicated three-dimensionally. Mm -hmm. uh, taking spatial slices and dealing with things being one inside the other and one and two and three-dimensional. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've, we've just spent months coming to, I think, a very powerful set of modeling concepts, again, in our model library around spatial modeling. Um, you know, what it means to be... Uh, something to be solid with a solid interior, but something or something to be a shell where you have a void inside that other things can be inside it, but aren't really part of its solid interior because it's not solid. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of work went into that, a lot of looking at work that's been done in things like the STEP standard and others, um, Conrad Bach and Hans Peter Ciccone. So I think that that has provided us with a really interesting underlying ontology for this space and time that's going to yeah. just be really important again for our physical modeling mm -hmm. so um model libraries they are also a special feature of system v2 and of course they already existed in system v1 but uh system v2 they are used very intensively so some model library elements are quite obvious like a library for units now we already have a model library with units in system v1 but some library elements are special right? like part, which is a base type right. for all part definitions. And uh, there are many other examples like this. So you can ask yourself why you need this. And can you elaborate on that a bit and on the library concept in Sysmo V2? You don't need to ask yourself. You can ask me. Yes. So, um, <laughs> and I'll have the answer. So yes, uh, one of the things that we did, and this came to some extent out of the Carmel work 
uh, and out of this sort of not just onto behavior modeling, but sort of an ontological viewpoint that we wanted to base all our modeling on a consistent set of ontological concepts that we could build as much as possible within the modeling language itself. Now, UML has this you know, huge abstract syntax and it's got a lot of text around semantics and very few standard model libraries. SysML mm -hmm. um, has a few more model libraries, but even QUDV, the quantities and units, there was issues in putting that together. So that's actually non-normative, uh, even though it's widely used as it is. We wanted to, again, build a lot of the experience that's been shown in like programming languages and other modeling languages like Modelica where the libraries are critically important. Um, and one of the failures in UML has been that everybody sees it as this big language and you have to learn the language and then build everything yourself rather than seeing it as a language with a rich ecosystem of available models that you and, and libraries that you can build on. So we wanted to make this mm -hmm. very much a library-centric kind of approach to building the language. Um, but not only that, because we're building it up in an ontological way, the library itself is our ontology. Now we have user libraries, quantities and units, mathematical libraries to deal with vectors and um, whatnot. And, but underlying the special libraries are our semantic libraries. So you mentioned part, which is mm -hmm. built several levels up, but that's important. And this is where the definition and usage still gets back to the basic idea. What is, what is the fundamental definition, right? Um, so if I am going to say, I just want to think of a part, I'm not going to give it a definition right now. I'm just going to say, this is my vehicle. And I'm going to say, this is my vehicle with a six cylinder engine and this mass and whatnot. I'm not going to say anything about, about the general definition of vehicles. Well, what happens is, is that actually is a specialization of the generic definition of a part. So a capital P, what is the most general thing that is a part that can be a part of something else? That's what we have in our library. Why is that useful? Well, because there are general concepts there. What does it mean to be a part? Well, in System LV2, a part is an item that has an occurrence in space and time, but also can perform actions, exhibit states, have ports, and interconnect with other parts. Those are basic ontology of what a part is. If I say something is a small p, is my part, whether I give it a, a further definition or not, it picks up all these general capabilities from the most general kind of part. So yes, all of our usages, even if the user doesn't see it and they think it's just usage focused, it all has some sort of a definition. Um, and that definition may be pulled in explicitly so they can say this is a part and they can just think part, oh, I can put a port on it because it's a part. I can have it perform an action. Uh, and what that means is handled relative to the ontology behind the scene. Uh, and that all goes back because a part is a kind of item which goes back as a kind of uh, object, which is a kind of occurrence, which is a kind of anything. Uh, and, and those are all, well, anything is anything. Um, and occurrence is something that happens in space and time. An object is a structural thing. Uh, an item is specializes that for system LV2 as, as a, a structural concept that may represent something that may or may not be a part and may just be you know, fuel inside a car. And then we've got a part and et cetera. Um, and that is, is really critical because if you wanna understand in detail, what the meaning is behind these things, that's actually itself modeled in system LV2 and, and Kermel, which gives you the ability to extend it. So now not only can users extend the language syntactically with the equivalent of stereotypes, they can extend it semantically by extending that semantic library. And they can do the same thing. When I tag this thing as um, a uh, cause of a failure, well, that means that cause of a failure, that cause, uh, I have a library that says, oh, a cause can cause certain effects, which can result in certain failures, and I can actually model that, and that means that model of cause effect and how that relates to causality and the time and, and whatnot, just by tagging my user model, now it pulls in that semantic library, that user semantic library also. Um, and that is the real power that you get because not only now we have SysML, um, but the whole profiling on top of SysML, 
which turns out, I think there's more SysML profiles done by systems engineer organizations than there are profiles that were ever done by users in UML. It's very popular. Um, and now they'll be able to get the semantic extension if they want, as well as the syntactic extension. So we'll be able to really build organizational domain-specific languages on top of our systems engineering community-specific language, which is built on top of a very general ontological uh, kernel. Wow, <laughs> I would say uh, there. I, I, I guess we can we could continue for hours, <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, for all the listeners, um, you can you can read this up. What what what's happening in the language? What's happening in the specification? It's all in the pilot implementation, uh, which Ed mentioned before. Um, yeah, the URL if you want to be that available, uh, yes, we will. Uh, put it into uh, the show notes, uh, sure. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, if you want to be part of this and maybe for SysML v, uh, v2, you are a little bit late, but for <laughs> SysML v2.1, um, yeah, join the OMG, join the SST, bring in your concerns, your ideas and and be part of it. You, you it's, it's more, Yeah, it, it's not really a democratic process, but it's it's nothing. A community somebody process. Somebody dictates. Yeah, it's a community process. Right, right. Okay, so at maybe as a last question, um, so you know the language in detail. How would an ideal in an ideal world? How would a SysML v2 tool look like? That's a good question. I don't know if there is one ideal tool that would be ideal for everybody but I have thought about what would be my ideal tool. So I'll just say for me, um, and you know, I'm coming, I'm an engineer, but I'm uh, work as a programmer and I still have my hands in the code. Um, so I've probably done more programming than engineering, consider system engineering engineering, but more software development than systems development over the last 20 years. Um, I very comfortable textual notation, but I see the power of the graphical notation. So to me, the ideal tool would allow me to put in models textually, represent them graphically, modify them graphically, would get rid of all these dialog boxes. So instead of popping stuff up, if I wanted to say, oh, give me the details on that, or just give me a little, a, a, a little window that would have the textual representation. And if I wanted to go in to any level, I just modify the text and the graphics would update uh, in sync with it back and forth. So my detailed view would always be the textual view. My view to look at the big picture and to have different perspectives would be the different graphical views. And then my environment would give me all the power of an interactive development environment. Um, a system modeling environment uh, that would allow me to refactor, reorganize, but would be backed up with the capability to do full collaboration. And, and too many of our modeling tools are built on, are, have, have the UML tools, almost all of them were built initially as standalone graphical modeling tools that were then interfaced with some sort of underlying repository. We have the opportunity now to think from beginning from the beginning on how to do the kind of collaborative modeling um, that everybody does. And, and again, the, the programming community, I'll to get to that, but everybody does collaborative modeling, GitHub. So my tool would be this kind of a user interface, but it would front end on the kind of environment you have now. It might even be a um, modeling as a service environment where you have the repository in the background, um, you have your tooling, all the various kinds of tooling, and you have standard gateways to interface to uh, the rest of the world, the software world, the CAD world, the PLM world, the requirements world. Um, so that, that, that is, I think, where the future is going from my point of view. That's where I'd like to see it, to, to, to see it go. Okay, well, all right. thank okay. you Ed, for all these insights. Um, and um, yeah, um, as, as stated before, we could continue for hours and maybe we will make an, 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 a second 
uh, episode. So uh, let's see what what our listeners are asking. Um, so if you <laughs> made it until now as a listener, feel free to comment under the video. Um, write us an email. Uh, ask us questions we will take them to ed we will meet ed in two weeks in orlando and uh, we will ask him all the stuff you are asking and uh, please consider subscribing this channel i may i may answer more of your questions Be nice. <laughs> great so tim what's next well, we have not decided yet. Uh, we plan to do another episode um, end of this month, um, so before the summer break. <laughs> uh, well, maybe something about PLM or so, but well, we have not decided yet. So. Yeah, and then, well, at the end, uh, as usual, uh, do not forget. Trust us, we are systems engineers. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.